Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Uh, just a heads up, today we are talking about a sensitive story. Last week, fake pornography that was generated by AI of Taylor Swift went viral. AI-generated porn has been a problem for years. Today on the podcast, will the outrage over the fake Taylor Swift images finally push governments to act? I'm Elamin Abdul-Mahmoud. This is Commotion. I wanted to give you that heads up in case you're listening with someone very young, but I'm also conflicted. I'm conflicted about giving you that warning because I think it is a conversation that young adults need to hear about safety on the internet, about consent on the internet. Let me just set it up for you for a moment. If you haven't heard the word deepfake yet, first of all, I'm genuinely happy for you. Uh, And second of all, let's talk about it. Deepfakes are images and videos generated by artificial intelligence. The technology, though, has become so powerful and so accessible and still remains pretty unregulated, which means it's pretty easy to abuse and has caused a lot of real harm for years. For context here, in 2019, a cybersecurity company reported that 96% of deepfake video content was non-consenting pornographic material. 96%. That is a staggering statistic. Last week, the conversation around deepfakes finally seemed to explode in a new way because explicit AI-generated pornographic images using Taylor Swift's likeness were shared on X, a.k.a. Twitter, and they went viral. Her fans reported the deepfakes, then came an onslaught of reactions. Uh, First, the Hollywood Actors Union condemned the images, and then the White House felt compelled to weigh in. We are alarmed by uh, the reports of the the circulation of images that you just laid out, uh, false images to be more exact, and it is alarming. So while social media companies make their own independent decisions about content management, uh, we believe they have an important role to play in enforcing enforcing their own rules to prevent the spread of misinformation and non-consensual intimate imagery of real people. Sadly, sadly, though, too often, uh, we know that lax enforcement disproportionately impacts women, and they also impact girls, sadly. So that's the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. Uh, deepfakes are not a new problem, but we sure are talking about it now. Sam Cole from 404 Media and Melissa Hecula from MIT Technology Review are here to talk about it. Sam, Melissa, welcome to the show. I'm glad that you're here to make sense of this horrific story. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having yeah, thanks us. Thanks for having us. Of course. Listen, Sam, let me start with you. We saw how these deep fakes of Taylor Swift went viral, but what you've been up to is investigating where they actually came from. What have you found? Yeah, so we've been um, on this beat of AI-generated imagery, especially non-consensual porn and AI-generated imagery for a really long time. So we were already in some pretty shady groups that were sharing these kinds of images and creating them. Yeah. What we found was uh, people in this Telegram group, which is an encrypted chat app, were sharing images of Taylor Swift already. And then that's where they basically kicked off from. They launched from this Telegram group. And people in that group were using Microsoft's 
uh, designer tool, which is like a text to image generated AI tool to create these images. So you just type in what you want to see and then it, you know, brings it up on the screen. Um, they were getting around some of the guardrails that Microsoft already had in place by using pretty simple prompts that brought up nude images of celebrities. Hmm. Uh, what's alarming about that is that what you're telling me is in these Telegram groups, the images are being made all the time. We just know about these because someone shared yeah. them on social media. And they're like, they typically don't do that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Actually, the people in the group were kind of talking amongst themselves and saying, you know, who put these on Twitter? Um, they don't necessarily usually use Twitter to share these because they can do it in Telegram without going, you know, going unnoticed, basically, because it's an encrypted chat app. So yeah, it blew up on Twitter, because that's a mainstream platform. Yeah, uh, Twitter allows pornography in the feed. So it blew up from there, basically. A lot to talk about just there. I want to come back to that in just a moment. But maybe, Melissa, let's talk about deepfakes in general. Because as I mentioned, deepfakes and non-consenting images, that's not a new problem. Can you just contextualize as far as how far back does this go? And how did it escalate to this point, do you think? Yeah, I mean, they've been around from like 2017. And the original use uh, for deepfakes was to swap women's faces onto nude bodies, right? Like that is the hmm. genesis of this technology. And back in the day, you know, you had to have some technical know-how, like a pretty good computer, 20, 30 good photos of, of whoever you want to deepfake. Um, and it, it was really hard and it took a lot of time. Hmm. But now with generative AI, it's become super easy and super cheap. And, you know, you, you need one photo you take from someone's Instagram and you can generate something really passable, even in video format, which is which in the past has been really hard. Yeah. So, yeah. So we, we, in, in, so if this technology goes back as far as 2017 in a pretty short period of time, we've gotten to like truly kind of crisis levels. Uh, Sam, the Verge reported that one of the Taylor Swift deepfakes was viewed more than 45 million times. It stayed up for 17 hours before X removed it. Uh, we should talk about how the social media platform blocked Taylor Swift as a search term to prevent people from finding and sharing the deepfakes. That was one way of handling this. How do you feel about the way that X handled it overall? I mean, it's the way that Elon Musk's platform, you know, formerly known as Twitter, has yes. handled most moderation issues. Yeah. Totally ham-fisted, um, just saying, you know, we can't actually deal with this in like a thoughtful, considered way mm. that addresses the issue and also lets people use the platform as designed. Uh, so we're just going to completely, you know, wipe the whole issue off the off the site by blocking Taylor Swift's name, which is, you know, the, that's one of the most popular. One of the most searched names on, on the, yeah. the yeah. site. Yeah. So and as of yesterday, I was looking at it yesterday. I mean, I haven't looked at it this morning yet, but um, Taylor Swift AI as a term was still blocked. You could you can search Taylor Swift still, but. Yeah, it's still a mess. Um, I think Elon said he's going to add, you know, quote unquote, 100 moderators by the end of the year, which, you know, Elon says a lot of things. Um, sure does. What a weird thing to say, but okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, it's a mess. Um, yeah. It has been a mess since he he bought the thing. It was a mess before that too. So. Well, we should say like, I guess for some context, like Elon Musk has particularly been resistant to moderation on Twitter. Like he's, this is not like a, a new thing for him. I think being confronted with this crisis uh, forces you to act because a lot of people are responding to you. And like you said, it is this ham-fisted response, but it comes on the heels of years and years of the degradation of of, of Twitter slash X's moderation capability. I, I wouldn't say that 
Elon Musk has had a comfortable relationship with moderation when it comes to um, actually trying to moderate some pretty toxic stuff that, you know, exists on the platform that Twitter used to moderate that it doesn't uh, anymore. Uh, the other element we got to talk about, Melissa, is Microsoft here. So Microsoft is one of the major players in generative AI at the moment. The CEO, whose name is Satya Nadella, responded to this controversy. Here's a bit of what of his interview with NBC. I would say two things. One is, again, I go back to, I think, what's our responsibility, which is all of the guardrails that we need to place uh, on around the technology so that there's more safe content that's being produced and there's a lot to be done there and a lot being done there. But it is about global societal, con you know, I would say convergence on certain norms. Uh, and we can do, especially when you have law and law enforcement and tech platforms that can come together. I think we can govern a lot more than we think. Uh, Melissa, I kind of feel like every time I hear anyone in the generative AI space talking, all they're doing is talking about safety measures, which tells us something about the relationship that we have with this particular technology, because all they do is talk about safety measures. Why have these safety measures been so ineffective so far? Because I, I feel like tech companies are really unwilling and un unmotivated to like really think about this deeply. Hmm. Like they have some pretty basic things like content filtering, um, but that's pretty easy to get around with, with like typos, you know, you can do Taylor <laughs> Swift and yes. that'll still generate something. Um, so yeah, there hasn't really been any um, motivation for them to do this properly. Um, I guess one thing people are really excited about are watermarks, which are sort of invisible layers on images that would help um, algorithms detect these images hmm. and, and track them. Um, but they're not really applied across the board and they only apply to certain models. Um, so, so if Microsoft, say, applied watermarks to all the images that it generates, that would be a great start. Sam, you've been reporting on deepfakes for a long time. I don't know if we've seen such a huge response to a story like this one. Uh, SAG-AFTRA, that's Hollywood's actors' union, they put out this really strong statement condemning it, uh, as we heard the White House responded. Why is there so much sudden interest in solving this problem, do you think, right now? I mean, a short, easy answer would be Swifties. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Good answer. I, you know, for better or worse, the, yeah. uh, the Swifties are powerful. Yes. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a big part of it is Taylor Swift is one of the most talked about, if not the most talked about celebrity in the world right now. Um, you know, that's she's crossed over a lot of mainstream demographics sure. with the NFL stuff. So that's a big part of it. And also, I think people are more aware of AI in general and are aware of how it's affecting their lives and are kind of primed to be ready to fight back against it at this point. It's like, mm. we've heard a lot of talk about, like you said, like SAG-AFTRA is uh, making these great moves. Uh, we had the writer's strike here in the States where, um, you know, AI was a huge sticking point for the contract where yes. writers were pushing back against that. So it's like content creation and artistry and writing and uh, being a musician is under attack basically from AI in the public perception. So I think people were ready to say, this isn't right. This is another terrible use of this technology and we need to think more carefully about it. Uh, Melissa, we the last time we had you on the show, we talked about deep fakes and we talked about um, AI generated imagery and pornography. How does it make you feel that, you know, this is the moment and the attention that Taylor Swift is getting um, or the, the, the images, the fake images of Taylor Swift are getting is the thing that sort of pushes this issue to the fore? How does that make you feel? You know what? I'll take anything at this point. It's been mm. going on for so long yeah. and it's so serious. If this is the moment where we can actually see some change, 
fantastic, you know. Um, it really breaks my heart to see, you know, we've seen cases in Europe, in the US, where actual children, like teenagers, have had to face oh fake nudes of themselves. And that sort of interested authorities, but not to the same level as this. Um, so this really feels like a moment we could do something. Do, do you feel like, uh, do you feel like, the, the the momentum is there like is this, is this sort of what this feels like because i'm asking because canada has been talking about a federal online safety bill for years but has yet to pass one there are countries that do and have made more progress what do you see out there in terms of like actual regulations and what more can actually be done yeah there's a tons of different approaches and it's a sort of piecemeal approach everywhere. Um, in the US, you have some places like New York, which bans the sharing of these deepfakes. Mm. Um, California bans the creation of them. Um, in the UK, they also passed an online safety bill, which bans the sharing of these. And you can actually face jail time. Um, the EU is working on a bill that will ban, that will require all creators to watermark and disclose when you're interacting with a deepfake. So you know where it's coming um, from. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think China has probably the most um, the strictest rules. So they they huh. ban all of that. But then also um, you have to authenticate and ask for consent before you make a deep fake of someone. So those are the different things people are thinking about at the moment. Sam, what kind of regulations do you think governments should be talking about right now? I mean, it's a tough question because it's such a hard thing to regulate. We're talking about the internet. So it's yeah. um, there's there's not a lot of like, you know, still, even though the internet is 30 years old, we're still asking these questions of like, where is jurisdiction? Like where, you know, where can we bring these things legally? Right. Um, but I think just strengthening the laws that we have in place would be a start too. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of the, a lot of what Melissa said would be a really good uh, path forward, but also the non-consensual imagery laws or, you know, quote unquote, revenge porn laws that are in place now are not good enough as is. And that's mm. talking about literal images that were taken without someone's consent and put on the internet or shared. And, you know, the police aren't responsive enough to that sort of thing. The legal system fails women every day when, with that sort of thing. So when you add AI as another layer to it, it's mm. just stacking on more complicated issues onto something that is still kind of not stable enough to help women, help victims of these kinds of images. So right. yeah, I think we need to back up a little bit and say, you know, we have legal, you know, repercussions or, you know, recourse in place. How can we strengthen those and then add the AI aspect onto it? I think we are also talking kind of in the haze of the shock of these images because these images these images seem to have shocked a lot of people who maybe were not thinking about AI generated imagery as any kind of online danger. Um, it's it's useful to have shock because like out of these shocks sometimes that change can come about. It's way too early, as, I think, as you both have mentioned in terms of figuring out what that change is going to be. But in the meantime, we got to leave it there. Melissa and Sam, thank you so much for your time. I think we're going to be back to the story. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. Of course. Sam Cole is a writer at 404 Media and author of How Sex Changed the Internet and the Internet Changed Sex. We reach her in Brooklyn. Melissa Hecula is a senior reporter at MIT Technology Review. She was in London, England. Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. News, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show from real life issues like grief to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat. 
come to life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud, and you are listening to Commotion. Listen, I want you to listen to this. It's a bit of the trailer from the new CBC, sh- CBC show for the culture. My name is Amanda Paris. I'm a frontline community worker turned writer, producer, and TV host. And I am constantly thinking about culture, race, and social issues. Let's imagine new possibilities. A six-part series... This is For the Culture. That is a brainchild of its host, Amanda Paris. You know Amanda. You know Amanda from her time doing the CBC Arts program, The Exhibitionist. Or maybe you know her play, The Other Side of the Game, a Governor General's Literary Award winner. Or maybe you know her comedy web series, Revenge of the Black Best Friend. For the Culture is Amanda's deep dive into the stories and issues that black people across the diaspora are talking about and why these stories matter to them. That entire series is available right now on CBC Gem. And Amanda Paris is right here to talk about it. Amanda, hello. Hello, friend. Hi. Hi, friend. Uh, uh, listen, it is your bio is getting longer and longer as you become more and more of a multi-hyphenate. You've done theater. You've done television. You've done a book. You've done a short film. Then now you've this new series you are we've gotten into documentary okay what made you want to go into this direction this time yeah i mean well one i don't think i knew how much work it was (laughs) first off i just want to say shout out to documentary filmmakers newfound respect (laughs) i take my hat off to you my god um but also just genuinely i was so hungry for conversation i pitched Mm. this show in 2020 a time when we were all kind of locked in our homes uh only talking to each other via social media or telephone or whatever and i was just really hungry for like really long conversations where we could go in depth where it wasn't Mm. limited by characters um like i mean twitter characters or whatever (laughs) like i just really wanted to have these the space to, to to dive deeply. And so, you know, I pitched this show where I would get an opportunity to do something I haven't gotten a lot of chance to do as a host, which is long form interviews. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to specifically to do them out in the world. Again, it was 2020. I didn't want to be in a studio. I wanted to be out there. I wanted to be where the stories were happening. And it was just such a gift to get a chance to do that. I mean, out in the world is a bit of an understatement here, right? In this, in this particular context, this is six episodes that we're talking about, and you visit six different topics and six countries within the black diaspora. I'm sure every – I think we got to talk about the fact that I'm sure every episode is important to you, but can you just tell me which one was the most fun in terms of doing yeah, in terms of the most fun, it's definitely Diaspora Wars. Um, <laughs> That's the first episode, Diaspora Wars, yes. Yes, the first episode is Diaspora Wars. That uh, episode was really fun in the sense that we didn't know where we were going to go. So we mm. had an initial idea of what this episode was going to look like, and it that I- idea wasn't panning out, and our conversations were taking us on a different path. So we thought we were going to do an episode about representation and the way that Black folks represent each other across the diaspora in film and television which is a great topic. Love that. Um, Yeah, just exploring examples of that for those that aren't familiar with this topic is like, 
when African-Americans portray Caribbean people in films and the accents are terrible and just like doing this deep dive into what is our responsibility to each other because yes. we're so often talking about cultural appropriation from communities outside of our own. Mm -hmm. And I just want to focus on Black folks in particular. But then our, our, our conversations were moving in a different place and we started talking about home and belonging and what happens when we um, start moving into, as Black folks in the diaspora, start moving to Black countries um, because we notice there's this movement happening called Blacksit, where a lot of Black folks are leaving places like the United States, the yeah. United Kingdom, Canada, and are moving to Black-dominated countries. And that became really interesting. And so we started following that path. So it was great because it was like true documentary. You didn't really know where you're going and you you start investigating. The, you find The discovery things. happened in the process. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then just, you know, getting to talk to really amazing folks. We talked with comedian Gina Yashere, who was so generous and open and also allowed so us to come funny. to her home. Yeah. So yeah. funny. Come to her home on her birthday and do the interview, which <laughs> wow. was like so sweet. Um, I, we also got to document Grenada, which is a country that rarely gets seen on the yes. screen and that the CDC has never been to, um, and, and capture one of the carnival traditions of Jab Jab, which was so magical. Yeah. So it was just, it's a really fun episode. I'm glad that you brought up Diaspora Wars because I actually want to play a bit of it. The, the frame here is that like you get into some of the tensions happening between different ethnic communities within the black diaspora. Let's take a listen. When African-Americans do depictions of Caribbean people oh, and the accents oh, yeah. are terrible. Oh, okay, yeah. And I'm like, Man, okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm But at the same time, you know, if you've got, like, Tay Diggs doing a Jamaican accent mm. now, there's, there's something about how he's brought a bit of a light to the Jamaican culture. No, so, my <laughs> thing is not don't do it. My thing yeah. is do it well. That is a uh, peak Bolu Babalula quote, by the way. It's, just, it's not, <laughs> you're allowed to do it. Just do it properly and do it well. Let's, so that's a bit of the first episode of For the Culture, hosted by Amanda Paris. Amanda, I got to talk about the fact that you spend all this time talking to black people about how they think about other black people from different places. Um, and I was ready for the fight. You know, I was ready for people to be like, no, East Africans are better because that's kind of how I generally stand on this particular topic. <laughs> but you, that's, that's all on you. That's all on you. You take that and you run with that. And okay. I, I'm and not I joining will. that. And I will. Thank you. But, but what you did is you zoomed out 30,000 feet. So what was your big takeaway from that episode? Yeah, I, I, I didn't realize that I was so like as we started this journey, I didn't realize how much I was invested in this idea of maybe there's somewhere out there that I can find where I will feel like I belong and mm. that I can call home. Mm. So, you know, as somebody who was born in England, lived in Canada for most of my life at this point, one parent from Grenada, one parent from Venezuela, I never really felt this strong sense of connection to one specific place. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of Blacksit and folks going out and consciously trying to find home was so appealing to me. And I was like, maybe that's what, you know, I need as well too. Maybe it's something, but as with everything, things are way more complicated than what it seems. Yes. And what I learned was, you know, there's a huge responsibility that we have as people from the West moving to some of these locations and the kinds of ways that we disrupt the ways that our privilege disrupts, the ways that we challenge and transform those spaces cannot always be, is not always positive. Yeah. And, you know, what became clear was that the thing that I'm looking for might not be a physical geographical space. It might be something else, something that's a little bit more abstract, but that we create in traditions and in culture and in community. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't the most satisfactory discovery, but <laughs> it was really powerful nonetheless. I think that's a huge discovery. I think that's like a really like meaningful discovery. I I, I like 
the name and the frame for the culture. Because I think what you're saying is, hey, this is this is for us. It's for the culture. So I think you're saying these are the kinds of conversations that we should be getting into. So what are the kinds of conversations you're hoping black people have because of the show? They watch an episode of the show and then they turn to other black people and they go, we got to get into this because it matters to us. What are, What is the hope of those conversations? What do you hope? Yeah, I mean, every episode is slightly different. Um, I think a lot of it... Uh, comes down to what can we do for ourselves together collectively and mm-hmm. on mass and with our own power. Um, there are some things that I think I really want tangible specific change that is not just focused on black folks. So like the black maternal health episode, I want yeah. policy in this country to change. Like yes. I want us to start collecting race-based health data so that we can prove that there is a black maternal health crisis here. And through that evidence, we can then get the interventions necessary to stop that crisis. Like that is very specific. And that is what I want to come out of that episode. And then there are episodes where I just want us to think differently about what success might look like, for example. So like the business of black hair, if we keep framing our success under these capitalistic models, is it is that going to be beneficial for us? Do we need to imagine outside of that? Do we need to think differently about things? Um, is there a possibility of success that doesn't include becoming this massive multi-conglomerate? Maybe it's something smaller, local, but still beautiful and incredible. So, you know, there's just like, I have different specific hopes based on each episode, but mostly I just want people to start asking different questions about topics that we've been thinking about for a long time. So you're saying that there might be a season two. Now, this is, this is what you're saying. is like you've asked all I these questions really, and you're like, <laughs> you're like. I mean, I really want there to be a season two. I hope there's a season two. I made this wanting this not to be a one and done. Yes, because I think there are, I think like what you posed is a lot of questions. And now I'm like, oh, Amanda, I want you to go out and find the answers. But maybe that's not always the thing that documentaries want to hear. You know what I mean? Like documentaries are like, no, I went out and I got you the questions. You're welcome. Um, Amanda, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Of course. You're the best. Amanda Paris is an award-winning writer, executive producer, and host. You can catch her new CBC series for the culture right now on CBC Gem. And that is it for the podcast today. Hey, remember, you can listen to any episode of the show anytime you like, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, we're on Instagram at CommotionCBC. My name is Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm going to be here tomorrow. If you're going to be here, love to see you then. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.